0: Chapter thirteen, final <laughs> chapter of Nehemiah. Here we go. Um, I think. Do we have the words, or are we going to go for a PowerPoint? Thirteen. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, just start. Just stop. no problem at all. Okay. Um, sorry, just checking. It is thirteen. It's thirteen. Yeah. On that day, uh, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, referring to when they were in the wilderness, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now, th- this, is a, this is a section that we wouldn't apply in the same way they did. Uh, this is uh, particularly speaking into the uh, into the epoch, if you like, into the season, the covenant in which they were in. So I'll just read it because it's in there, um, and you could I could prote- potentially preach on it, but I'm not going to draw things out of it. But all I really want to say is is that this would, be, when you're particularly looking at the old covenant, you really need a lot of wisdom because there's a massive continuity, but also areas of discontinuity. And so um, just wanted to make reference to that. Um, we will not be separating out various ethnic groups and saying we're not going to hang out with you guys, okay? The, the opposite. Um, because the Bible says that through the cross, Jesus has brought together Jew and Gentile yeah. and made them one. Okay. And so there's been actually a breaking of every, every curse of that kind under the new covenant uh, with genuine blessing from God now above that, which is why we, we don't, we're not just kind of uh, ambivalent towards the international thing. We are zealous and passionate about uh, having a, a, a family that is of every, well, as many nations as possible to signify the wonderful work that Jesus has done. So I just wanted to say that. And then the next three things I'm going to just... I'll preach, pull out the thing, preach, pull it out, and finish it out. Now before this, Eli- Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah. Now Tobiah's one of the guys who's been causing a lot of problems in the earlier chapters. This guy prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they'd previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and the tithes of grain, wine and oil which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king and after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem So said, Nehemiah's been away for a while, he's come back again. And I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber or a room in the courts of the house of God. I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations and then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Sadok the scribe, and Pidea of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Question. When we hear this, uh, I was very angry, And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Does that remind you of anything else in the Bible? Jesus clearing the temple. Now remember, you've always got to find Jesus in every part of the scriptures because Jesus taught after he was resurrected that all the law and the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament, were pointing towards him. It's all fulfilled in Christ. So what we have is Nehemiah as a type of Christ. We've looked at that, haven't we? Nehemiah rebuilds the city of Jerusalem. Jesus builds the church. You and I co-labor with him, but it's his project. It's his church. He carries the uh, complete zeal. Zeal for God's house consumes him. And as we become more and more like Jesus, we become more and more on fire for the church. Because what's in his heart is caught into our hearts. But you see a picture. It's very reminiscent of what Jesus did because it's a very similar thing that happened. What basically happened was this. Eliashib, who was the priest... He basically took one of the houses in the court of God's house, the temple, which was normally used for storing up um, the tithes for the Levites and the singers to to live off of. And instead of that, he made he made like gave someone a bedroom or like a study. He just gave it to to someone who was fundamentally, you know, actually to be honest, regardless of whether that person was godly or not is irrelevant. But he was ungodly, just to make it worse. But he said, "You can you can hang out there." And it's like, what are you thinking? Basically, what's going on is he's just he's just doing doing something, he knows a little favour. But what what he's really doing through it is sacrilege. He's taken this the house of God, which is made for God for God's glory. And, and if you read Exodus thirty um, Exodus twenty five onwards, you will see the incredible detail God goes into with the temple, how he wants it. He knows how he wants his house. All right, you haven't got to have a load of amazing ideas. He knows how he wants it. And he's very clear, I want it like this. And Elisha just says, well, do you know what? You can have a room in there. What are you thinking? And really the picture here is, is when people just take the church and, and fashion it according to their personal preference. I oh, will have a bit of this. I oh, won't do that. It's like, no, that's not how it works. Now I'm all for creativity and innovation and expression and all of that. But this isn't talking about that. This is when you take things that are fundamentally meant for God's glory and instead you make them either for just for people's comfort or you make them just for convenience or you make them just because, well, I like that person so they're alright doing that or, or whatever and it's like, no. And actually the response here, Nehemiah's response of throwing the furniture out, it's a very godly response. It's a response of zeal and holy zeal and he's got the heart of God in him. Now God's zeal and God's holiness and God's jealousy is actually quite unfashionable. What's fashionable is to be really laid back about everything. That's cool, isn't it? If you're laid back about everything, you're cool. If you get worked up about stuff, you're not cool. God gets worked up about stuff. You better be thankful. Because if God didn't get worked up about sin, and if God didn't get worked up about the fact that you were estranged from him and alienated from him, if God was chilled about that, there would be no gospel. You've got to understand the strength of feeling in God's heart to give up his one and only son to alienation, to hostility, to sin, to, to the curse, in order to win you back. That's the heart of God. That's the jealousy of that's the jealous love of God. That's the zeal of God. That's the strength of feeling in God's heart. Which basically means this that if you decide, if you if you give your life to Christ and you let the Spirit of God indwell you and the heart of God be put inside of you, then you'll become someone of strong feeling. You'll become someone who feels strongly about things that God feels strongly about. You will find yourself affected, impacted by injustice, by oppression by lovelessness, by lukewarmness, by compromise. It will affect your heart. Why? Because the heart of God is being birthed in you and is growing in you. And I want you to see Jesus in this story. I want you to see beyond Nehemiah and his funny ways because he was a funny guy, a strange guy. You probably wouldn't have wanted him as your pastor. You wait till we get to the end of this chapter. You'll be like, oh mate, he was a strange guy. (laughs) They normally are. But uh, he carried God's heart. I want you to see beyond him and just see Jesus. He is zealous for you, he's jealous over you. And just because he doesn't always intervene in the moment, don't believe the lie that he is indifferent. The Bible says, no, he's patient. (coughs) There's a patience in the heart of God that is incredible. There is a time for everything. And there will be a day that is fixed where every wrong will be made right. Every injustice that you've suffered will be made right. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So understand the heart of God. Understand the holiness, the holy place of the house of God, the church. You can't just fool around in the church with dark stuff, dark sin. If you're part of the community of the church... If it's in, even if it's in secret well no one knows yes someone does know and feels really strongly about it and wants to pull you out of that and, 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 and establish you walking in the light it's really important it's ever so important sometimes it's quite terrifying you know when you, you sometimes other people come out with something or something is discovered about someone you think you've been around for a long time and you've been you've been into that <coughs> And you've known, you know, you've known that it's not what the Lord wants for you. And and it's not not just the normal stuff. We all struggle, we all stumble in many ways, but it's just like carving out paths of sin and secret lifestyle and appearing one way but being another. You think, oh God, help us. We're We're the body of Christ, we're the household of God. We can't just do that. We've got to help one another out of that. So see Jesus there. And then we move on, verse 15. And in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to all the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? Do not your father's act in?" Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. (laughs) (laughs) Then I commanded the Levites, they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favour, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Sabbath. A year's worth of sermons in there. What do we even think about the Sabbath? The New Testament is clear we are not under the Jewish Sabbath. Okay. That's clear. That is that has been discontinued under the New Covenant. Okay? There are so many rules for the Sabbath, for the Saturday. We're no longer under that. I'm not going to go in depth because we don't have time as to the various thoughts. On the Sabbath under the New Testament, but I do want to say something that I am really, really clear on, and the New Testament is really, really clear about, and it's this rest is serious business. Rest is a very, very serious business in God's heart. And you Londoners need to hear me. Okay? Because it's not funny, it's not a laugh. To just work yourself into the ground for some strange issue you've got in your heart. You're either trying to, I don't know what, demonstrate something to someone, to yourself, to God. You're trying to run the universe basically one way or another. Or you're just, if you're restless or you're living just anxious, refusing to trust God and rest in his ability to care for you. Or if you're just a workaholic, or if you can't stop thinking about money, or you think your destiny somehow rests with you and what you do, you are deceived. And and the way that the way that you will live will be out of kilter. Rest is a serious, serious business. And there's many different ways. I mean, it's a very in depth discussion, but what do we even mean by rest? And all of that. Is it coming here and singing praise songs? Or is it jet skiing? You know, what is it? I understand the complexities involved. I will say this, of this I am sure. Quoting Jesus. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls Learn from me. I've got that all the wrong way around. Sorry. There's also in it somewhere he says, <laughs> Learn from me, for I'm humble. Take my yoke upon you. You see, Jesus doesn't call weary people to come into his kingdom so they can get wearier. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will make you really weary. <laughs> come to me, you who are heavy laden, and I'll make it ten times worse. When you meet some Christians, you think that's what they're bought into. There is rest of soul in Christ. It's different from inactivity. I'm not talking about inactivity. But if what you are doing is not coming out of a deep rest in Christ, it's not worshipful. It isn't. It comes down to trust trust in His provision, trust in His shepherding, trust in His goodness. Trust in His faithfulness. Trust in His schedule. Not to lead you to a kind of uh, uh, apathetic fatalism by any means, but so that what you do comes out springs out of a confidence in Him. Whereas I prayed when we gathered before the service, this I'm living with this thing of the sovereignty of God being a headline and not a footnote in my life. A theological box I tick. No, it impacts me when everything goes wrong that morning. When it all goes wrong, and the whole plan, my plan, not necessarily his. The whole plan has gone wrong. What sort of person am I like at that point? Now I don't believe in ideal perfection in this age, but I do I do believe in ongoing sanctification, becoming more and more like him. And I want to just give a clarion call to rest in Christ, which takes time to meditate. To think, th- to look at yourself, to get some others in your life to help you, and say, "Am I a stress head? Am I peaceful to be? Am I, am I life-giving to be around? Or do I just create more anxiety wherever I am?" Good fellowship with truthful friends will help you in that, and on the right diet, and looking at it, with reality, what is my life driven by? Is it the need to prove myself? Is it selfish ambition? Or is it godly ambition? These things are very important, guys. So you be on Nehemiah to Jesus. He's as serious about you resting as Nehemiah was, threatening to lay hands on people that wanted to do work on the Sabbath day. Finally, it gets really hairy now, and that was a, you'll realise that's a pun as I read this in just a second. In those days I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they couldn't speak the language of Judah but the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. (laughs) And I made them take oath in the name of God saying you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was beloved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin, even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashai, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Then I cleansed from them. Then from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. What's gone on here is intermarriage. Now, this is not an ethnic issue. It's a worship issue. Okay, You've got to hear that. In these days, it was an ethnic issue. People from other, other, other ethnic groups worshipped other gods. Okay, That was the issue. It was a worship issue. You get married, you bring your God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, into the marriage... They bring their various statues and things and we'll just make it work. We'll make it work. One way or another, you know, know, there's no hostility. I worship this one. You're sympathetic to that. We'll, We'll be supportive of each other but we'll bring it together. No. When Ezra, who is a contemporary of Nehemiah, discovers the same thing going on, he has the same response, only slightly less dangerous to those around him. Ezra 9, verse 3: As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is that these people had no discernment fundamentally. They thought that they, they could make this thing work. It'll be fine, it'll be alright. Well, you worship, we'll, we'll make it work. But the whole time you are desecrating the holiness of God. We'll make it work is not the issue. The issue is, who gets the glory? And we live in such a, such a people-centred age that this is quite foreign thinking because our natural default can tend to be, well, how's it going to work for me? Can we make it? Can we make this work? Well, that's the second question. The first question is, is it pleasing to him? Does it please the Lord? That's the first question. And the New Testament is clear. It's not against interracial marriage, but, but blows a very loud clarion call about getting together in any relationship with someone who's going to end up basically compromising your walk with Christ no matter how supportive they are or sympathetic they are, the issue is, can they run with you? Can you run together? Because you've been saved, not to just, not to just sit there, but to run a race. There's a race marked out for you, and so that race is a holy race because it's a race from the Lord for you. He's designed it. Good works, prepared in advance. It's, it's holy. It's holy ground. It's not just you figuring out, I wonder what I'll do next year. No, there's a race marked out for you, that you are to run. And woe betide anyone who is careless about that and adds things into their life that makes them walk, limp, or just sit around or stray off onto another race. That's holy, you can't do that. Man, This is, I mean, this is the heart of God, he's, he's, he's searched you out. He's won you, redeemed you, brought you to himself. He's given you out of his heart. He's got a plan, good and wonderful purposes planned for you to transform you into the image of his son. This is the heart of God. He's just so for you. Wants to cheer you on, wants to to see you bear incredible fruit. The last thing he wants is to see you in any kind of relationship that either subtly or suddenly squeezes the life of Jesus out of you, chokes The word of God in your heart. And you become the shadow of what you were. You're just a shadow of what you were. And you still proclaim Christ as your Lord and these things. But it's just not quite the same anymore because (coughs) I can't do that. Because I'm yoked. I'm yoked here in this situation. And actually, the New Testament, although it's really, really clear on yoking with those who don't know and love Jesus, no matter how sympathetic. Really clear on that. I think the yogic thing is probably even a little bit more nuanced than that, and it's it, it, there's a lot of wisdom needed, particularly in life partners, marriage partners, where you're saying, "I know you, I, I love you, and I know you really do too," but will our will our race? <laughs> we've got to use our head a bit. Do our races fit? Because my heart, I I I'm off I'm off to China to adopt a thousand children. How about you? I'm going to set up a muffin shop in Kentish Town. It may not work. (laughs) Yet they both may be glorious, but you've got to have that conversation. You've got to work it out. Why? Because you're called to run. And you're called to throw off everything that hinders. And the sin that so easily entangles. not just sin. You've got to throw the sin off, but actually it's anything that hinders. Even good things. Sobering. So, but you gotta, you gotta catch the heart here. This is big deal. God is zealous about this, particularly marriage. You can think about kids. You want godly offspring. You want, you want to be together, raising children to the glory of Jesus. On the same page. It's massive. And some of you in this room may be in a stage where you feel like, actually, oh, if only you told me this twenty years ago. If only you told me this thirty years ago. I, I'm on the other side feel like I look back and I made those mistakes and it's not quite. Do you know what? Let me tell you something. The grace of God can reach into any situation. There is nowhere where his grace can't reach and restore the years that the locusts have eaten and bring hope and bring life back. So I'm speaking words of serious caution and wisdom, particularly to those of you that are more at the beginning of the race. Massive. You've heard it. You've heard it. Don't mock God. You've heard it. It's the word of God. Don't say, well, yeah, but then he said, God commissions everything so if I just do that. Then that's called mocking God. Don't do that. Take him seriously. You've got got a holy race to run. Those of you that look back and your heart feels heavy and you feel, oh, What do I do? Jesus comes and just says, it's okay. We'll get you back on track. There's grace. There's hope for you. Nehemiah finishes with this. Remember me, oh my God, for good. You can imagine praying with clumps of hair in his hand, you know. (laughs) Crazy old (laughs) bean. Remember me, oh my God, for good. You think, think, wow. Oh guy, you know. And then you think, well, God, I know you will. You know, he might, he might be a bit full on, but I know you will. And then you try and look beyond him to Jesus and you think, actually, what a, how much more will the Father remember the work of his Son? <laughs> you know, we're told in Isaiah 50, Isaiah prophesies about, in the first person, as if he's being Jesus. It's so vivid. He talks about those fucking... Plucking his beard out, pulling out his beard. You think, why? Why Why did Jesus? Well, because he took on the sin of the world, the judgment, the curse of that. He's looking at Nehemiah's hands, you think, whose hair is that? It's Jesus's. What's going on here? Substitution. Shocking message. What's going on? And you see him crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You think, no. But yeah, that had to happen, but it's not the end of the story we know that he was welcomed as he ascended, as he rose from the dead and appeared for 40 days and then ascended into heaven and was given a name above every name, that there was a massive welcome into heaven and that he's established at the right hand of the Father, King of heaven, King of earth. He reigns, he rules and uh, our hearts can be thrilled with the mercy and the grace and the holy wonder of what Jesus has brought us into we can live out of a place of deep rest and confidence. And a quick call to those of you who you just know, you want to know this, Jesus, but you don't, or you're just kind of not sure, I want to call on you and appeal to you and urge you to to seek Christ. Because he offers forgiveness to all who come to him, regardless of what you've done and what you've been through. Regardless of what shame and guilt you carry, he offers to lift that and give you new life. So find Jesus, pray to him, talk to him, call to him, ask, ask for him to reveal himself to you. Because all who come to him, none of those will he turn away. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for this mighty book of the Bible, this mighty message of radical reform, holiness, restoration, conviction. It's just... Filling with dealing with things that are way beyond way beyond our shallow and superficial age. Our age of anything to look cool, anything to appear anything to appear relaxed and laid back, anything to get people to like us. Anything to seem politically correct. It's so shallow. When we're faced, Lord, with your holiness, your timeless unchangeability. We honour you. We honour you, that you are the same yesterday, today and forever. And yet you're always doing something new. <laughs> what, a, what a God to be caught up with. Father, I just pr- I pray for my friends, my brothers, my sisters here. I just, I just say, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. There is such joy. There is such joy in knowing you. There is such joy in following you. We thank you that holiness leads to happiness. Thank you, Lord. That's everybody's living in a world chasing after happiness. Holiness leads to happiness. And we've got to attend to that first, and I pray that, on the foundation of grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we would really learn to walk in such a way whereby the aroma of our lives is out of Jesus and not Jesus plus, just Jesus manifesting through our God-given personalities, through our temperaments. Jesus manifests. And I pray that for this church. I pray that for your church in this nation and across the world, that we would grow into maturity, grow into the stature of Christ, that we would be that bride ready, prepared for your return, where we can be joined with you forever. Amen. Amen. Why don't we stand? We're going to sing. We're going to respond. There's bread and wine. If you need to get right with God, you need to confess your sin, you find people to do that with, let's just do business with God in the time that we have left.